Okay. Do you want the history? I don't know. What have I gotten us into? <laughs> Lori, how many times have you seen episode four? Maybe like 1.25. Duct tape is like the force. It's got a light side and a dark side and it binds the universe together. There's more like pew pew, laser fighting, Star Wars. Stormtroopers don't burn people. They just shoot them badly. Can we talk about Darth Vader for a minute? He looked so tiny and cute when I watched it as a grown up. <laughs> this was what we wanted space to look like. Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast. A podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know-nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth. And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging. May the fourth be with you. Today, we welcome a very special guest, my big brother, Pat, an English teacher, college professor, and ultimate Star Wars fanboy. As we discuss the film that started it all, 1977's Star Wars, episode four, A New Hope. Because honestly, as two Gen X chicks who feel pretty whatever about Star Wars, we understand this pop culture phenomenon deserves so much better than us. But before we tackle the evil empire, we'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe. Pat, Mr. Star Wars himself, thanks for joining us on the Untitled Gen X podcast. Grateful and honored to be here. We're so happy to have you. Hello, brother. Yo. And, and as a caveat in the process, when, when, once you say Mr. Star Wars, there's no pressure there whatsoever. So <laughs> yeah, you need to carry this <laughs> as an open caveat uh, and disclaimer. I'm going to get something wrong and that's OK. And those of you who are upset, please direct all complaints to Lori at yes. the Gen X podcast. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> but the fact is you have a long and loving history with this film. This film is really important to you. So if you're going to get it wrong, better you get it wrong than us get it wrong because we're going to get it wrong like 99% of the time and you're going to get it wrong like 2% of the time. So I think we're pretty good. You know the most about this than anyone else in this space right now that's recording. So <laughs> there you go. We'll never know. That's also not saying much though. So it's just... <laughs> it was meant to be a compliment. <laughs> Let's begin, Pat. I want to know your history with Star Wars Episode Four specifically, because I know that you are such a big fan. Hey, this came out in 1977. How old were you when this came out? I would have been three. I was born in 74, but I don't think I saw it until I was four. I'm sure mom and dad were probably sitting there going, oh, it's it might be too violent and we don't want to mm. traumatize him and have to take him to counseling and therapy, which, you know. <laughs> Do you actually remember the first time you saw it? I Okay. I remember a very specific time that we went, and this will date it right away. I remember going to see it at the drive-in, and I remember seeing it in the 78 Honda we had. Ooh, that was both of our cars eventually. It lasted a long time. It, it explains my undying love for Hondas ever since. But I remember seeing it at a drive-in with the, you know, back before you could like tune your radio to it, you had to have that speaker mounted on your window that was, you know, you were hoping desperately it wouldn't break your window. Yes. When you saw this film, were you just like, wow, like something shifted? I mean, you know, we were so young. I don't know if it was something shifted or that we just recognize something that was always there. 
the story that it tells and you know we don't necessarily have to get into whole joseph campbell and the monomyth and the you know but the hero's journey yep and and the story that goes with it that you can't help but connect with you know whether you're relating i at the time i was luke um you know the the farm boy who Mm -hmm. was clueless and terrified of the world and didn't know i was at that age up until sixth grade my sister will tell you this i was Mm -hmm. terminally shy Mm. oh i kind of forgot about that it's so hard to imagine now Uh, yeah my high school students don't believe me um but it was one where i would if if they were singing happy birthday to me i was under the table don't look at me so this is around the same time then, because you sent me some photographs. They were pretty epic. And one of them <laughs> is you with a very, um, I mean, I know Joey Lawrence came later, but it was a very Joey Lawrence haircut. <laughs> you, you're dressed to the nines and you are smiling and holding your Star Wars action figures. And it's a precious photo. So you're telling me at that time you were very shy. I was very shy and I had had a mother who was a thespian and very expressive and constantly pushing to come on, come on, come on. You could do this. You can go, come on, you could do. And it was a struggle for quite some time um, until I, it actually, okay. Useless information. You can edit this out as need be, but I was Patty up and until sixth grade, inclusive of sixth grade. And I remember I always I called you Patty. And we have a lot of listeners in Ireland. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this one's for you guys. It's the idea that I was Patty up until sixth grade. And I didn't take on the moniker of Pat until seventh grade. And I think, you know, not to get all psychological reflection or whatever, that was where there was a lot of change. I'm not saying Star Wars is in no way, shape or form responsible for that. But it's for the fact that where I was, you could look at the story and say, that's cool. I want to be part of that. Right. And when they did the reissues, um, the special editions in the late 90s that I went to go see in the theaters, I was a bad person to drive with after seeing episode four because I would get on the road and I've got my X-Wing and here we go. And (laughs) (laughs) How many times do you think you've actually seen episode four? End to end, 50. Wow. Lori, how many times have you seen episode four? Maybe like 1.25. <laughs> and and that, that one was just two days ago, you guys. So <laughs> my family, I, I'm married. I have two sons. They love Star Wars big fans. And so they were really excited about this episode today. And I'll be honest with you, Pat. Patty. Uh, It's a little bit difficult for me because I really, I was dreading sitting down to watch this because I just felt like, oh, science fiction. And then of course, just the bigness of it all. And when I was sitting down to watch the film with my family, they kept saying like, oh, but you know this, and then they would tell me like backstory. I'm like, stop. I know this is big. I know this is episode four. I know there are films before this. I know there are films after this. I need to focus on what this film is telling me specifically, not all the backstory, because it'll just make my brain explode. And there's just so much to know. So do you know what I was thinking as I was watching this is that, and Lori, maybe you don't know this, so maybe you can shed some light on this. Although I think you probably do. I was like, 
what it must have been like to watch this back before, spoiler alert, guys, uh, you knew that Luke and Leia were brother and sister. Oh, yes. I mean, that much I did know. Okay, okay. I don't know much, but I, I did know that. And I knew that they were on the good side. So I was already a step ahead okay. of Kate. <laughs> but to be fair, if, if we're really going to get into it, when Lucas made this and the script had been written and he did not, he was really pessimistic. He did not think this was going to do well, which is why episode four, not called episode four at the time, it was right. just Star Wars. He told it and there was a definitive ending. Yes. And, and he didn't think it was going to do well. And the only person who really believed in it um, was Alan Ladd at, you know, 20th Century Fox and Steven Spielberg, who had had this huge blockbuster of Jaws before, um, were like, this is great. This is going to do well. And Lucas was like, I don't think so. It's not going to. And so when he wrote this, and and even when they filmed it, Luke and Leia at that time in that script were not brother and sister. Oh, that's a great tidbit. And even at that point, Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader were separate characters. They only merged later. Oh, see, I thought it was symbolic when he was like, oh, Darth Vader killed your father. I was like, right, because he like overtook him. Which is is what, and and not to, I don't want to, I don't want to break too far ahead, but there's a point where there's a confrontation between Ben Kenobi's force ghost and Luke in Empire Strikes Back, which is often seen as the strongest of that middle trilogy. Mm -hmm. And he says, why did you do that? Why, you, you lied to me. And Ben says, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Yeah. And that's key. So a lot of what it has to do is there's there's a notion, and you'll hear this in many nerd, you know, flick, this Marvel, this, you know, all this thing. It's the idea of retconning, which means retroactive continuity, which means if you tell part of the story, you have to make it fit with what came before. Sure. Which is why when Luke and Leia kiss, once you find out later on they're brother and sister, you end up sitting there and there's that very weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Okay. Kate's face says it all. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry. It, it was just something that no one had ever seen before. All the all the space movies before this were 2001 and maybe a clockwork orange a little bit, although that's right. kind of dystopic. This was what we wanted space to look like. I mean, there was Star Trek, but that was still very different. Okay, so we've already touched on the fact that this was written and directed by George Lucas, and it was released on May 25th, 1977. Now get this, the budget. Now for 1977, this is this is a decent budget, right? 11 mil. Any guesses on how much money this thing made? Uh, well, people did seem to like it right from the get-go. I have no idea. 20 million? Okay, Pat, what's your guess? I know that year, 20th Century Fox. Sorry, I was watching one of the one of the you, documentaries. You cheated. I How did. Dare you? <laughs> well, but okay, so here's the other side to it. If you go with 1977, it was only released in 40 theaters initially. People didn't want it. They were concerned. They wanted to see the other side of Midnight, adapted from the Sidney Sheldon novel. Right. So once people started coming out and they were like, oh, hey, people care about this thing. It's doing really well then the release just got wider and wider. So how much do you think it made? I'm going to say $80 million in 1977, 78. So the number that I have, and I'm not sure that this is specific to 1977 in all fairness, this might just be like even including like re-releases. I'm not entirely sure, but I've got $775.8 million. 
that number might be including the re-release. It probably is. Crazy. Now I'm curious. Either way, it did really well because 20th Century Fox made more money that year. On a typical year, they would like make $37 million. Right. And the 77 or 78 that year, they made something like $79 million, which was unheard of for them. They have never had that much of a bump in terms of, yeah, and it's all because of Star Wars. It's all because of Star Wars. And actually, Star Wars did really well. I mean, at the 1978 Academy Awards, they won for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Score. Surprisingly, though, they lost Best Picture, they lost Best Director, and they lost Best Supporting Actor Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they also lost her Best Screenplay. Which was actually surprising to me. It's not because the think of the think of the tentpole movies now. It it, it created the tentpole movie of the summer because they released it a little early before Memorial Day weekend, True. so it wouldn't get you know destroyed by everything else. Mm-hmm. And then of course it came on to it ran I think forty four weeks in the theaters, which at the time that is one thing I do remember going to see it at the drive in is that that was not the first time we saw it. And the idea of no slam on my dad, but why would you go see a movie more than once? You know what's going to happen. Right. Because before the rise of home video, it was like you had to see these movies in the theater. And if you really liked something, you saw it multiple times. And they often re-released films that had done well. And that was the only way that you could go see them. And so it makes sense. I remember on one of the reissues, it was on one, one, one of the special editions, going into the theater, and it's a midnight showing. It's it's a very it's a very weird experience because it, it draws a particular crowd. Sure, were people dressed up? People were dressed up. That's people fun. have people have got the lightsabers. Cool. Can I just share how different my brother and I are? <laughs> <laughs> so my brother goes to the midnight releases of Star Wars where people are dressed up in different Star Wars costumes. I go to the Hollywood Bowl sing-along of The Sound of Music where people are also dressed up in costumes. <laughs> in their lederhosen, yes. And later so hosen, yeah. Some similarities and some major differences. <laughs> okay, so should we get into the story, you guys? Go for it. Okay, so Pat, feel free to jump in and tell me I'm wrong in my notes because, you know... I've seen it 1.25 times. But you've done the research 1.8 times. So <laughs> That's true. Okay. So we open with R2-D2 and C-3PO under attack by the stormtroopers, and they're led by Darth Vader. The Empire's looking for some like stolen plans for the Death Star, their new battle station. And Darth and his people, they can't recover the plans. And is this because Princess Leia put that like CD looking thing into R2-D2? Okay, you're nodding your head. Yes, okay. Yeah, she stashed the plans in R2-D2. And the droid. She gets the plans beamed to her. And yet she's got to put it on a CD. Like a physical (laughs) copy. You guys, it was 1977. That was advanced. A CD was advanced. It wasn't like on a giant floppy. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So the stormtrooper like zaps Princess Leia. And this, of course, she's wearing her white dress and signature side buns. And a bunch of rebels end up dead. None of that matters except for the fact that Darth Vader and Princess Leia exchange some heated words. And he tells the stormtroopers, take her away. But she's really his like only hope to find the rebel secret base. Am I right, people? Well, and the problem is they've got, this is the introduction. There's a, there's a term called a MacGuffin. 
that is referred to by Alfred Hitchcock. And it's basically a thing that the characters are trying to pursue in a film, but doesn't really have value in and of itself per se. And R2 is the MacGuffin for this. And everyone wants to get it. And once you've got it, you've got power. And okay. so he's got the plans and you know gets into the... I'm, I'm sorry, am I skipping ahead to, to get into the... Well, no, the, go for the, it. The escape pod. And, uh, and they are launched off to Tatooine. C-3PO and R2-D2 are now on the desert planet. You know, they encounter the Jawas, who are basically like, what, nomads of the desert? Something like that. They're they're scavengers. So when I was a kid, somehow in my mind, thought that the Jawas were just like winter prepared Ewoks. That you just couldn't see the Ewoks all, all covered up with their hoods. <laughs> because it's just the, you know, the brown robes and everything. You can't really see anything. Well, and so they make those little sounds, those little like sounds. Yeah. So they capture C-3PO and R2-D2 and bring them back to the Jawa ship. And Owen Lars, he's a farmer, uh-huh. he purchases the droids. And his nephew is Luke Skywalker, who lives with him and his wife. One of the things I went back, you know, because I hadn't reviewed it in a while, because I was sitting there going, I'm going to, if they ask me how that's his uncle, I'm going to have to somehow explain that. And it's actually his, his dad. See? Families were complicated back then. Um, His biological father married Anakin Skywalker's mother. So technically, Anakin and Owen were stepbrothers. But they were never raised together. They were never... They were never connected, really. They they knew of each other. And the interesting thing that's really coming with this, and I realize, Laurie, you're looking forward to this like there is no tomorrow, um, <laughs> is the, the characters are coming back. They're doing an Obi-Wan Kenobi TV series for Disney+, Plus, and they just announced the casting. You're going to see Owen and Baru again, the younger version of them, with Luke as a kid. Oh, very cool. So. I just thought it was interesting as I was watching this that... Luke is a little bit whiny and annoying. He's totally whiny. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) I wanted to go into Tashi Station, get some power converters. Right. (laughs) Let's talk about Luke for a minute. Mark Hamill, he was actually encouraged to audition for the role of Luke Skywalker by Robert England. Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street. Isn't that funny? That is funny. Yeah, and he ended up getting paid $650,000 for this role and a quarter of a percent of the film's profit. So he did pretty well. well. That was lucky. (laughs) That was some good negotiating. So you found him annoying. Well, not so annoying. And I mean, it makes sense when you look at like the arc of like the hero's journey, right? He has to start out as this kind of uninitiated sort of naive character. I think most of my memories of Star Wars probably are of uh, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So I don't ever remember this Luke, this sort of whiny, like, gee, golly. Like, I was like, gosh, he's kind of like Opie. Um, (laughs) But along those lines, he he keeps whining about, I want to go to the Academy. I don't want to be on the farm. I want to go. I want to go. And yet when the opportunity presents itself, he turns Ben down. He says, I don't want to go. Luke Skywalker heard the call for the first time. Mm. And denies it. Mm. Yep. And just an interesting bit of trivia, because I'm always interested in wardrobe. You might want to know that the pants that he wore in the first film, they were just Levi's that were bleached and the back pockets were removed. Okay. Now I have an issue. My brother (laughs) shared with me a story last night about (laughs) the fact that Carrie Fisher was not allowed to wear underwear 
during the filming because there was, there were no underwear in space. And that the idea was everything needed to be different. Things couldn't look the same. And yet the lead male wore Levi's. She was interviewed. I, I watched part of the documentary and she said, you know, there's no underwear in space. And this is the older Carrie Fisher who's got no problem talking to you about just about anything. That's why we loved her. So I may much. have told that story wrong. I'm just going to say. No, no, you told it. You told it because she said in the future, there is no underwear, but there is gaffer tape. And she said, what we ought to do is have a competition to see who wants to put their name in for who gets to rip it off at the end of the night. And oh, it's just like, oh, ow. ow, that hurts parts of my body. That's a painful bikini wax right there. Yep. Yeah. So apparently George Lucas called Star Wars the most expensive low budget movie ever made. And so it was really important to him that every penny spent was reflected on screen. So essentially, they they just couldn't afford underwear. (laughs) Those bras, those are expensive. We don't want them. They, they were they were two weeks behind schedule and the studio came to them and they said, shut it down, shut it down. And and so, you know, Alan Ladd goes to him and he's like, listen, you have one week to finish this film. And he's like, what do you mean? It's going to cost more money to finish it in a week if we have to break it all up and do three different units. And he's like, we don't care about the money. We care about the time. And he's like, OK. And so they finished it in a week um, wow. at principal photography. It was crazy. Interesting. Luke accidentally activates R2-D2, this confidential message, right? The hologram of Princess Leia saying they're in desperate need of Obi-Wan's help. Mm -hmm. And this is where Luke is like, ooh, who is she? She's beautiful. And I mean, knowing what we know, that's really like cringe, but. But we don't know that till later. So it's okay right now. It's totally innocent at this point. But interestingly, R2-D2, played by Kenny Baker, he was paid $7,810 for his role. Well, and they they had all sorts of issues below because a lot of what they were doing is making up the technology as they went. Both the filmmaking technology, they had these robots and they're like, oh, we'll get we'll get R2 to roll and we'll just make him like a big remote control, except you can't remote control anything in the desert on the sand. Right. This does not work. And so there were a series of issues. And Kenny Baker even talks about a point where they're like, yeah, they finished the shot and everyone started to walk away. And I'm still inside R2 going, hey, hey, hey remember me, guys? <laughs> Let me Wait. out. Let me out. Anthony Daniels, who played C-3PO, I I read his autobiography and he talks about literally the first time he got put into the C-3PO armor was in the desert for the first time. And it was horrific. He couldn't sit down. And once they got him in, you're not taking a bathroom break there. And it was really hard to breathe. And you know how C-3PO's eyes light up? Well, those are directly in front of his eyes. And so, you know, and this again, they're making it up as they go. So that got a little warm and it was just the things he described that you talk about sacrificing yourself for your art. But, um, but with that said, Anthony Daniels is the only actor who has appeared in all nine of the Star Wars. Oh, how interesting. Pat, do you know where this was filmed? If you're talking about on location in, in the desert, that's Tunisia, North Africa. Wow. They got there to film, and the very first day they went to go film, Tunisia and the Sahara got its first rain in 50 years. <laughs> of course they did, right? Ain't that just the way? The sets on the Death Star and stuff like that were set in London at, I believe it's L Street, but don't quote me, studios, because there were these huge studios that they had to build these gigantic sets, and uh, so they were working there for that. Oh, that's fascinating. So Luke's uncle tells him, you have to erase the memory on the droids. And Luke mentions the message about Obi-Wan. And this is where the uncle shoots his aunt, that like weird look. 
I mean, they're trying to protect him, right? And so he tells Luke, oh, yeah, like, Obi-Wan, yeah, he knew your dad, but, like, he's dead. And the uncle wants Luke to stay, like you were saying. Stay on, help me harvest. And this is when Luke is whining, you know, I don't want to wait another year to go to the Academy. The quiet history that's there is when he leaves, Baru looks at Owen and says, he has too much of his father in him. And Owen looks up and he's like, that's what I'm afraid of. And now, of course, we're like, a little foreshadowing. Big time. Right. And of course, none of us knows what that means. Right. We just know there's a history there. And now we're intrigued. Indeed. R2-D2 escapes in search of Obi-Wan. Luke and C-3PO go looking for him. There's an altercation with sand people. They're like barbarian space wizards or something. What, what, what's their deal? The the general perception would be more of like, uh, I've heard them compared to the Bedouin people of, uh, you know, like the Sands, um, where, you know, they, they're, they're a hard scrabble folks because they live in the desert and they've lived in the desert desert for, you know, millennia. You see a lot more of them and their culture because, you know, in, in Star Wars, A New Hope, they're just savages. You know, they're, Careful, they're gonna they're the bad guy, they're gonna get you. And um footnote the part where where Luke gets attacked by the sand person and the guy's got his his gaffy stick over his head and he's like uh, 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 uh. um he actually only waved it once and the film editors wanted to keep it going. So if you pay attention, it's looped. Um where oh. he's doing that. <laughs> um, so but they they put it in and um later on in, in the Mandalorian, which is the new series, we get to know them a lot better and we understand their culture and it becomes much more horrific because Anakin went and slaughtered a whole bunch of them because his mom was taken captive. They're no longer just these barbarians. They're these, you know, people. There's context. Sure. Right. So, and again, that that, that reflects the changing views of our society. So. Obi-Wan finds Luke in the desert and we find out that, I mean, do we technically find out that he's a Jedi Knight or that like he was a Jedi Knight and now he's in hiding. Like, I don't know how I came to know this. He tells it, he gets, um, you know, Sir Alec Guinness was what lent the show um, the air of respectability. You know, we've got a knight on and he's from the bridge on the river Kwai. He was in Lawrence of Arabia. The man got knighted, you know, 20 years before by, you know, Elizabeth II, who's still the queen. Um, <laughs> still. <laughs> and, right. And so it's something he says, uh, your father was a Jedi Knight, you know, like me. Um, and he introduces okay. Luke and and infamously, you know, he shows Luke, this is your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi. Yes. And interestingly, his compensation for this role, he got 2.25 percentage points of the Star Wars total profits. million. Not bad for 77. And the irony is he really didn't. I mean, he liked the idea of being a mentor and a wizard and all that. But in terms of the dialogue and the acting, this is campy. I mean, yeah, I've I've done Lawrence of Arabia and you got me doing this. (laughs) Well, it was a it was a hefty payday. So it paid off. (laughs) It sure did. We learn that Darth Vader killed Luke's father because he was, quote, seduced by the dark side of the Force. There you go. And this is the first reference to the Force. When you hear about the Force, you know, it's, it penetrates us. It binds the universe together. There's a, a standard Star Wars joke that says duct tape is like the Force. It's got a light <laughs> side and a dark side, and it binds the universe together. Does it ever. Yes. <laughs> So in uh, Leia's hologram message to Obi-Wan, she asks for help at Alderaan. Actually, we didn't even talk about Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia. 
in terms of casting, Jodie Foster was actually up for the role. Kate, why is Jodie Foster up for like every role? <laughs> every role. I mean, I love Jodie Foster. Don't get me wrong, but like, yeah. man. <laughs> because she can play anything. Uh, this is true. She's such a talent, but also up for the role was Amy Irving. In terms of her salary, though, it's never been disclosed. She is quoted as saying, when I was 19, I was cast as Princess Leia in Star Wars. The mistake was I signed away my likeness for free. They didn't negotiate for any of the percentage points of profit like Mark Hamill or Alec Guinness did. Leia, Carrie Fisher is 19. Harrison Ford is 33 as Han Solo. I know we haven't gotten to him yet. And Mark Hamill was 25. Yes. So they were all kind of all over. Yeah, they were the they were the junior crew where, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're in the same room with Alec Guinness. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sir Alec Guinness. Yes. Obi-Wan asks Luke to help him. And this is when Luke realizes, oh, my God, my family might be in danger. And he rushes home and it turns out, oh, he was right. The stormtroopers traced the escape pod and killed his aunt and uncle. And Pat, Luke's upset, but he's. He's not that upset. I could have gotten more. He's angry. This is the turning point. This had to happen for the hero's journey to continue. You would never guess that my brother is the English teacher and not me. Um. (laughs) But see, the problem with it is what at least what me and all my friends were struggling with is they're burned to a crisp. But we're sitting there and we're going, but wait, stormtroopers don't burn people. They just shoot them badly later on. But, you know, they. But like blasters. Right. They don't need to do this. And so we got really puzzled. And they went back and kind of explained how they would use, you know, fire and stuff like that. But it was still puzzling. I mean, it's clear. They're not just like lying there dead. This is crispy dead, you know. (laughs) Right. You don't think they just like shot down fire from their. Well, no, they they have them Spaceships? later on. No, no. Later on, they have them um, with like flamethrowers, pretty much. Oh. Um, but it's like you're going after two old people. Well, clearly they wanted to make a statement and it moves the plot along quite nicely. Well, and that's why the irony of it. Okay, one of the running jokes within Star Wars is, and, and it's kind of funny because there's a line where um, when they're with the Jawas, Ben Kenobi says, only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. And there's a running gag that stormtroopers are terrible shots. Yeah, I was going to say. They really are. It must be that armor. What, or something, you know, but the fire, like, I guess you can't miss, um, you know, but it's just. Wait, while we're talking about stormtroopers, uh, am I the only one who feels like every stormtrooper has the same voice? Is it just one actor that talks all the time? Okay. Do you want the history? I don't know. What have I gotten us into? <laughs> They're all clones of the same guy. Oh, well, that would explain it then. Okay, do you remember? Wait, all of them? All of them. This has gone into in later movies, but it's the idea that they took one guy who was like a super soldier, Django Fett, and they clone thousands, millions of him. That is a horrifying thought. This this would explain why we don't see um, varying body types. Right. I was like, what happens? Like, how do those armor pieces work for the ladies? Because there's just not a lot of give around the chest area. But <laughs> apparently it's because they weren't cloned as ladies. So, Well, no, they are not. And if you, if, since it is May the 4th, Disney Plus is premiering a new animated show. There, there are a plethora of uh, Disney Star Wars shows coming out. I'll hit that at the end. But the one that launches, the first one that launches, and it launches this week is the Bad Batch, which is a group of five clones that are 
the bad they batch. went rogue they, they went rogue um Ooh. but they're not rogue squadron that's a different story and so it's of course that, it is <laughs> it's the fact that um you know that that you have and one of the things they struggle with in the clone wars is genetically they're all the same so they do a lot with like hairstyles and if somebody's been scarred in battle that that distinguishes oh, them so from okay but that's why later on when Princess Leia sees Luke come in in the costume and she's like, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Yes. That's why. Oh, okay. That makes but sense. But we didn't, we didn't know about the clones and all that back then. We just were like, okay, they're soldiers. Right. Right. And they all have the same voice. So see, look at that interesting observation and all we learned from it. And you were right. Plus, right. we're all confused about the fact that they're wearing white and the good guys wear white. And, and the bad guys wear black. Yeah. Darth Vader. Sorry. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Can we talk about Darth Vader for a minute? Yeah. He looked so tiny and cute when I watched it as a grown-up. <laughs> I don't know that he's ever been described as tiny and cute. Sorry. I just heard, like, all of the men my age just collectively groaned. <laughs> you know they did. He was embodied by David Prowse, who just died in November. Yes. Who is six foot five, an English bodybuilder, weightlifter, and character actor. And Lucas had seen him in A Clockwork Orange. He plays a part in that, and he cast him in this. The irony and kind of the sadness of it is um, he really thought his voice was going to be used. Aww. Oh, how sad. Clearly, it was not. <laughs> Speaking of the voice of Darth Vader, Time reported that Lucas said, quote, I created a villain. I knew the voice had to be very, very special. And I had to make a choice, a choice that was a tough choice. But an easy choice, really, between Orson Welles and James Earl Jones. Jones won hands down. Now, uh, James Earl Jones was paid $7,500 for two hours worth of voice work. Raised in Mississippi. Yes. The stutter. A stutter. Mm -hmm. And is now 90 years old, having just appeared into Coming to America 2. And there's actually a, a discussion going on because in Kenobi... Uh, Hayden Christensen is returning to play Darth Vader. Do you ask James Earl Jones at 90 to do the voice again? And if you don't, what does that do? Because he's been the voice always. All this time. Yeah. If you don't, you have to get someone who can impersonate it. Like, didn't they do that for Kermit and like Fozzie? I right? don't know. He has such a special voice. Like, I, I don't even know if there's anyone out there who could. Right. And that's, you know, it's kind of like there's certain voices that just stand out. Also, have I offended people by comparing a voice impersonator for Kermit and Fozzie to uh, Darth Vader? Sorry. You also did call Darth Vader cute and tiny. So I think that when I was young, he seemed so big, like this giant, terrifying monster. And for whatever reason, also, I didn't realize that he was in the movie so much in my memory. And maybe this is true of one of the other films that I'm thinking of, is that he wasn't in it much. And then all of a sudden he would like appear and you were like, mm -hmm. dun, dun. right. So I, it's funny how, like, I realized that until last night, I never read the rolling credits or not credits, whatever, the rolling text at the beginning. The crawl. Right. Because when I started watching this movie, I could not read. So it was meaningless ah, to me. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, okay. You couldn't read. And so you also wouldn't have noticed that James Earl Jones is not credited in the first oh. film's credits at his request. And yet everyone knows 
Right. But, like the voice, the voice is the credit, right? It sounds like somebody who is it? <laughs> I should, I should take that back. Everyone doesn't know because when I talk about it to my students, I have to point out that Mufasa and Darth Vader <gasps> yes. are the same. the same voice. <laughs> and then it all clicks. Oh, you see these middle schoolers and their eyes just get really big. Like, oh my God. It reminds me <laughs> of like when Lori was talking about in one of your previous episodes about the fact that, you know, nobody knows who the Mar- Ramones are. Nobody knows. <laughs> and like, you know, once you know, you can't unknow. It's central to your understanding of things. This is true. And Darth Vader's signature breathing, that was recorded by putting a mic inside of a scuba tank regulator. And I was terrified of asthmatic people for years after that. <laughs> but also, I, do you feel like, so Pat, you would know this the best of any of us here. Like, I feel like there wasn't as much of the breathing in this movie as I recall there being in other movies. It later on became a thing where you didn't have to see him. Right. Especially Empire. They would use that where you just hear the... <sighs> And you'd be sitting there going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. (laughs) He's coming. Right. Yeah. So I I just, I was, there were things I was surprised by in this film that didn't match my memories, but because clearly, so um, an interesting fact is that my brother had a copy of The Return of the Jedi when we were kids. Bootleg. Well, I had a copy of The Sound of Music. And uh, so each of us had to endure because <laughs> you know yes. that was back in the day when you only had like one device to play a movie on in a whole household um yeah so we both saw each other's movies a lot but the bright side is that kate had a deep and you know some kind of understanding of star wars and the characters and everything like that of course pat you shared with me a halloween photo where you are dressed as obi-wan kenobi and kate is dressed as princess leia she embraced it. Right. There's some controversy about this. It's possible that I was Darth Vader. Uh, we can't read my mom's handwriting on the back. I thought I was Princess Leia. Okay, there are three people in this photo. Yes, let me describe <laughs> right. it. Maybe we'll share it on our social media. That was back when I couldn't grow the white beard. <laughs> right, yes, right. Yes. And in fairness, because we can't tell, it's the Princess Leia mask that's just like the plastic uh-huh. mask with the eye holes with the string in the back yeah which I was like oh my mom like took all the care to like you know use the special facial makeup glue to put cotton balls on my brother's face to make him look like Obi-Wan and right. she's like here kid here's a plastic mask <laughs> <laughs> have at it to be fair Carrie Fisher was a brunette and you know you had strawberry blonde hair I mean she didn't even put my hair in the signature bun. She didn't I mean, need to. The plastic mask had had buns. I know, but what little girl doesn't want the side <laughs> buns? Come on. For the record, this is also, by the way, it was masks like that that prepared all of Gen X for the pandemic. You know, I don't want to hear anybody uh, complaining about breathing in a mask when we had to walk with those things on. Right. And the eye holes like never quite matched up. And like the mouth hole was tiny. But you had to run to get the good candy. And you'd sweat like a pig underneath that thing. It was terrible. Right. Well, and the vinyl, whatever that was made out of the rest yep. of the costume. Which was totally not flame retardant, by the way. Like, Oh, no. It would just melt right to your skin yeah, if it caught yeah. fire. You brush by a pumpkin that has too much of a candle lit in it. That's it. It's all over for you. You're done. You're just going to end up just like Luke's uncle. <gasps> 
Oh, that took a dark turn. <laughs> sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry, kids. <laughs> it's okay. There were people in the neighborhood that wanted to do that to me the year my mom gave out raisins oh. at Halloween. You guys, oh. it was the worst. Just put a target on yourself and say, hey, I have people in the neighborhood who decades later, like, remember the year your mom gave out raisins? And, Dude, it's and like, I don't even think they were like full-size sun-made raisin things. They were like the little tiny, like small raisins. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And throw that in the trash. That's what you're going to do. Thanks, mom. <laughs> so now we're at Mos Eisley, which is like a weird bar. This is where Luke and Obi-Wan encounter Han Solo and his trusty pal Chewbacca, who are crew members of the Millennium, as Han Solo pronounces it, Falcon. <laughs> Let's talk about the casting for Han Solo. Uh, Harrison Ford told Rolling Stone in 2015, I read with more than 100 actors. They asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, sure, why not? You know who the other choice was? Chris Walken. So Chris Walken was up for oh. the role. Also considered was Kurt Russell, Sylvester Stallone, and Al Pacino. Like, this would have been a very different movie. I just have to say, like, as soon as he... Because, you know, sometimes you go back and you watch old movies and you're kind of like, oh, they look weird or whatever. And I was like... Has Harrison Ford ever not been a beautiful man? No. The answer to that is no. I mean, he just, and he just has so much presence. I'm just like, man. And I know why, why you say that because he's kind of a cocky asshole and that's just is totally in line with the whole, you know, Troy Dyer of it all. Oh no. I've had a type since I was like two yeah, years old. <laughs> you have, it might be Han Solo's fault. So it's not Troy Dyer. It's not Ethan Hawke. <laughs> it's Han Solo. And Harrison Ford. He's the bad boy. Of course he's, he's the, the bad, bad boy. boy. No, now it all makes sense. It, we've come full circle. And and Harrison Ford was paid $10,000 for this role. Now he made $100,000 in the next film. And he got a career. Out of, I mean, he, he ended up becoming Indiana Jones out of this. George Lucas was the story writer and executive producer of all of the Indiana Jones films. Right. And Spielberg directed. Right. So we learned that Han Solo owes Jabba the Hutt some money. And so Obi-Wan and Luke offer Hans 17,000 currency, I don't know what <laughs> what money, to take them to Alderaan. The important part here, and this is a huge controversy in the Star Wars world, is because Lucas, God love him, appreciate the vision, love what he put together. He couldn't stop tinkering with his movies. And when he did the special editions, he went back and changed a whole bunch of stuff. And some of it was acceptable, but one of the ones that was horrifically and is horrifically controversial is that when Guido, which is the, the green guy who confronts Han and starts talking to him and saying, I'll take the money. And he says, well, Jabba can just take your ship. And Han says over my dead body. And he's like, well, that's the idea. And, right. you know, he's like, I know you've been looking forward to this. They make Guido shoot first. And therefore, Han is simply defending himself. In the original, Han shoots first. Guido mm. never gets a shot off because he's right across the table. How can you miss? Wait, what do you mean in the, the remastered version they have him? In the original 1977-78 version, in all versions up till the special edition, Han is sitting there, Guido's talking to him, and Han has taken his pistol right, out, right. and He's he shoots him under the table, killing him before he gets a shot off. And again, this establishes his bona fides as a badass that you just don't mess with Han Solo. So this is really interesting because one, this answers two questions that I had because I was like, wow, why does this movie look like it was made yesterday when it's almost as old as I am? So they remastered it. Yes. And two... 
in that scene when that, cause it like goes like over his shoulder, right? Like against yep. the wall. And I was like, what just happened? What was that? So it, it didn't even get put in very well. Yep. The next scene where Han and Jabba the Hutt are talking at the Millennium Falcon dock, my husband and son were like, this is new. That's a question, Pat, because they're like, Jabba the Hutt was never here. Jabba the Hutt was never there. And neither neither was Boba Fett, who you saw at the end. And and my husband kept saying, you're not watching the 77 version. I'm like, <laughs> we have the box set. I don't know. I'm just watching the disc. I don't know. I'm sorry. First of all, Lucas is a bloody genius. He's the only person I know that has made a film that I've bought like five separate times in different editions and stuff like that. Um, but now the version, did, did you watch it on DVD? Did you watch it on Disney I Plus? I watched it on DVD. I okay. watched it on Disney Plus. Okay. So there are slight variations. This is and- not a sponsored podcast. <laughs> it could be. But hey, Disney Plus, if you're interested, we're here. Kenobi coming in March 4th, 2022. Anyway, um, but it's the fact that they... Lucas had shot a bunch of footage that he wasn't sure if they'd be able to. And when things got rushed in post-production there, they weren't able to do it. So he filmed it. And if you see the original footage, it's actually kind of weird. Cause this, this big heavy set guy who talks with a Scottish accent the whole time. And he's got, oh, you know, Han, yeah. my boy. And da, da, da. well, the problem was in the filming of it, there's a point where Han walks behind Jabba the Hutt and Jabba, as a character, had not been designed as the big space slug that we get to see in Return of the Jedi. And so when they have him walk behind, they were sitting there going, how do we use this footage? How do we make it work? Because Jabba has this big, long tail. And so they literally went through, and again, it's a retcon. They make Han step on and over Jabba, which is why you see Jabba kind of go like, you know, like, because Han's stepping on him. And it was because they already filmed it. They can't totally you know, reshoot the film or anything like that. So they had to make it work with that idea. And that was their idea. But a lot of people got really upset kind of sitting there going like, come on. I mean, yes, we see Jabba, but why did you have to put him in here? You know, and you think Luke is whiny. You ought to hear Star Wars fans. Um, (laughs) So they're suddenly under attack. There's stormtroopers there. They've got to get in the ship and get the hell out. We're now on the Death Star and an Imperial officer is asking Princess Leia, where's the rebel base? She's not talking. And he says, we're going to execute you if you don't talk. You're talking about British actor Peter Cushing, who plays Grand Moff Tarkin. And he is, notice all the Imperials speak with a British accent. And you have Ben Kenobi, who has a hint of it, because he's from that era. Okay. You know, they. so it's, it's one of the things that all the rebels don't speak with a British accent, but all of the Imperials do. It's kind of a fun little. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know. Plus, one of the one of the biggies that we 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 left out in this whole thing is Chewbacca. <gasps> Chewbacca. Okay, let's talk about Chewbacca for a second. So you said earlier that he was played by Peter Mayhew. Yep. And he was only paid five thousand four hundred bucks for his role. Well, and to some degree, a lot of it was he was a physical performer because all of the sound effects. Right. They were lions and tigers and walruses. Yes, I read that. Walrus, badger, bear, and lion. It's a combination of all of those sounds. Right. And here's the really cool part. You ready ready for what the dog is based on? How's this for personalized filmmaking? (laughs) Chewbacca was based on uh, George Lucas's dog, which was an Alaskan Malamute named, you ready for it? Indiana. And, And his Malamute would ride 
in the passenger seat of his car as a co-pilot. And so when he went to write Star Wars, he's like, I need, I need, I need an Indiana. And so he creates. I need a co-pilot. Right. Peter Mayhew at, you ready for this one? Seven foot, three inches tall. Oh my God. He plays Chewbacca until 2015's Force Awakens. And then duties transferred to Jonas Sutamo, who is Finnish. And interestingly, only six foot 11. So Chewbacca shrinks a couple of inches. <laughs> Mayhew died in 2019. Oh. And just very, very dedicated. He was big into Wounded Warriors. Um, oh, helping cool. veterans who had been injured overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and the word Chewbacca comes from Russian Sobaka, which means dog. <laughs> well, there you go. We blast off. There's some literal Star Wars. We have we have the threat from Peter Cushing of, you know, I'm I'm going to execute you. So they go to light speed and, you know, it ain't like Dustin Crops, boy. And uh, Obi-Wan wants Luke to practice Jedi skills without lightsaber, without being able to see. We didn't talk about the introduction of the lightsaber. A great, a, what is it? A graceful weapon for a more civilized time. Did we talk about it when it was introduced way back with Obi-Wan? Like how profound the concept is of like a saber made of light. Does no, does no one else share my wonder? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know what a lightsaber does. What does it really do? It's a sword. Well, made of yeah. light. Laser sword. So it does all of the things a sword made of fire would do. <laughs> and it also makes that cool sound. The sound design. This is why I got the Oscar. Um, they put in all of these really cool things. Like the sound of blasters is actually a metal, just like a, a metal cable. And the guy was out there and he hit it and it made that doing. And he's like, ooh, that's cool. And so he kept recording it and hitting it different ways to see how it made that sound. And that's where you have blasters who come from. So it's that kind of sound design that comes in. But the lightsaber becomes much, much, much more powerful in future iterations to the point where they, they're like putting it through gigantic walls of steel. So we, we, we make the jump to light speed. We come out of where we're supposed to be Alderaan, but we're in some sort of asteroid field. Wait, is the asteroid field actually the remnants of Alderaan? Yes. Oh, that is rough. There's a point where they're on there and, and they're in. This is, again, showing you the power of the force. And suddenly when they blow up Alderaan, which is Princess Leia's you know, home planet, or she thinks it's her home planet. We find out later she wasn't really from there. Um, but the fact that they, they blow up her home planet and suddenly you see Ben Kenobi grab at himself and he says, I, I have this feeling that, you know, as thousands of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. So he's felt the, the disturbance and the force of all these people dying. He is the ultimate empath. He is. <laughs> I feel you, Obi-Wan. That's a heavy load. Well, we'll get to see that in the new series. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> So they get sucked in by the tractor beam. Footnote to the Alderaan being destroyed. They, they build on that in Mandalorian that... In the Star Wars universe, they had it set up where um, Cara Dune was from Alderaan and was not on the planet when it was blown up. So you get a very small tier of what's called the Rebel Alliance Starbird, which you can see on oh, my shirt. Oh, you're dressed for the occasion. I, I come prepared. Wait, do you have a Star Wars tattoo? Pat, what is this Star Wars tattoo? I got this when I was about 40. I, I said I wanted, if I was, I have something over here that has my initials and the initials of all the kids, all in okay. Celtic Knotwork. And I wanted something to balance it out. And I said, well, I need it to be something that is, you know, as important to me now. Um, as, as my you know, children. 
as as it is. And, well, not so much that, but it's like this has is, ever been. This yes. was for them. This is for me. For you. And so, um, and it is original artwork done by my tattoo artist Pat Fish in Santa Barbara. So if you like that kind of thing, Lucky Fish is her tattoo parlor, and I'm going there Saturday to get my. She's done almost all of my work. So um, she took a. I told her what I wanted, and she took a half That's moon, beautiful, and then spiraled it up to get what's called the Rebel Alliance Starboard. Wow, you'll have to send us a picture of that for us to put on the gram. That was included. I didn't know that was yours. Oh yeah. So if if you were from Alderaan and and your planet was destroyed, you got a very small teardrop tattoo of the Rebel Alliance Starboard on the left eye um, to indicate that that's where you were from. So it was it was seen as a symbol of solidarity among the survivors. Wow. So. But the other part that, that if we're back to the to the lightsaber, notice Han Solo is the one that looks over and he says, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. He doesn't buy any of it. He thinks it's all crap. What a surprise. So I have a question and it came somewhere around this area. But Obi-Wan says there are alternatives to fighting. Yes. But then he never says anything else. And I'm like, You're like, what are they? <laughs> Tell me, wise one. <laughs> they they show you, they hide and they they go into oh. the 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 containers that he uses for smuggling. And suddenly the floor lifts up and they poke their head up. This is when Darth Vader senses that Obi-Wan is on the Millennium Falcon, but Here. he's told it's empty. I sense something that I have not felt in a long time. And we and and part of this is is the backstory between Kenobi and Anakin is that Anakin he he basically takes over the training for Anakin and so when Anakin turns to the dark side it's Kenobi and and his failure for, uh, as a as a Jedi master to train him appropriately okay and so there's history so that's why later on I'm jumping ahead where he says like you know when I left you I was but the learner now I am the master you know only a master of evil Darth and you know, that's where we get to. So this, the last time they fought, Kenobi is the one who injured Anakin to the degree that he had to be encased in that suit. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that happens in Revenge of the Sith. We arrive at the the Death Star. I feel something I haven't heard before and Vader storms off. Right. And the gang tricks the stormtroopers where they're able to steal their clothes and they take over a control room and they devise a plan and Obi-Wan tells Luke, the force will be with you always. Yep. This is interesting to me because it's not like Luke has had any real Jedi training. Like he's clocked a couple of minutes with a lightsaber at this point by my calculations. Yeah, but Obi-Wan but... knows that he is the offspring yes, of a powerful indeed he does. Jedi. So Obi-Wan leaves to find a way to turn off the tractor beam. And according to R2-D2, Princess Leia is there. And she is scheduled to be terminated. So we need to rescue her. Han isn't that interested in like rescuing her. And not until he's told at least that she's rich and powerful. And now, okay, yeah, I'll do it because there's something in it for me. Because, you know, that's Han. And that's how it has to be. That's his character. So dressed as stormtroopers, they fight the Imperial Guards and they rescue Leia. And end up in that big trash compactor where... Princess Leia says, somebody has to save our skins. And there's a shootout with blasters. And Darth Vader at this point says, I must face Obi-Wan alone. 
R2D2 stops the trash compactor at the last second, at the <laughs> very last second, and they return to the Millennium Falcon. And so they 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 split up. You know, Han and Chewie end up chasing a group of stormtroopers one direction. Leia and Luke run the other direction, and they go up to a point, and there's there's a bridge that's out, and they shut the door, and he blasts the controls. And they have to get across, and it is from a reference to the seventh voyage of Sinbad, where he throws the you know the little what would be the rope, but it's you know space rope, right. and it connects, and she holds onto him, and they swing across. Very romancing the stone. Very, and, right. and the funny part was is that they were about twenty meters up off the ground, so you know a sizable distance to do this thing because if they fall, that's your actors, and they've got broken legs. Right. And at one point when the stunt coordinator was like, well, let me just show him how to do it. And they were doing it. And the 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 thing he was wearing, the strap thing broke. <gasps> um, and Mark Hamill said, wait, did that, did that, did the strap break? And, and the stunt coordinator said, no, 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 no. I just split my pants when I, when I was doing, he didn't split his pants. It broke. It broke. Um, but, but they got it in one shot. That's amazing. That iconic image of the two of them swinging across. We don't find out till later that they're brother and sister, and that becomes a little awkward. Right. So Obi-Wan is able to turn off the tractor beam, but he's met by Darth Vader on his way back to the Millennium Falcon. And Obi-Wan says to Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Dun, dun, dun. And there's a lightsaber battle, and Obi-Wan sacrifices himself, Right. Like willingly, because he gives sort of that knowing look, smile. To Luke. To Luke. But they fight. And, and the key is, is that Ben disappears. This is really cool because we've never seen this before. And it's a characteristic that only certain Jedi, we come to find out, possess. And so when he encounters death, he makes himself one with the force. And he is able to endure. And right. he dematerializes. Yes. Right. This was interesting because Luke watching this is devastated. And I'm like, okay, you've known Obi-Wan for like a day. I don't know how much time has transpired. I don't understand time in space. However, when his aunt and uncle died, he did not express nearly as much emotion as he did when Obi-Wan bit the dust. But but Obi-Wan was his mentor, even for that brief set of time. That was the person who was able to teach him and bring him into the larger world and things of that nature. Well, apparently that meant a lot more than being raised by his aunt and uncle. <laughs> so, okay, fine. Grief is weird. So he escapes with the gang with a little force help from Obi-Wan. And there's more like pew-pew laser fighting Star Wars that happens in a dogfight with the Empire, which interestingly, was based on newsreel footage of World War II dogfights that Lucas watched to help like strategize and choreograph the galactic battles. But they worked. They he, he sent all those newsreels over to his special effects guys and he's like, and girls, and he said, this is what I want it to look like. And so they literally followed that both for that and the trench battle at the end. Um, they're all based on all the dogfighting that you see because that made sense. It's fascinating. So. Yeah, so Princess Leia in her impeccable makeup. Man, I walk into a movie theater looking fine. I walk out two hours later, I have done nothing. And I look like shit. Like I look like I've been through a war. And Princess Leia has been through it, right? She almost got compacted in that trash compactor. She looks amazing. She's a princess. I I mean, right? So she leads the Millennium Falcon to the Rebel base on Yavin 4, but they're not exactly safe. So nope. she's pretty sure that they're tracking them, and she's right. She says it's not over yet, and she also wonders if Han Solo cares for anyone or anything. Well, and this is our 
you know, our, our thief with a heart of gold that, you know, he's still in the thief point. He hasn't shown the heart of gold just here and there where you'll have the point where he's like, I don't know. Still, she's got a lot of spirit. Yeah, I don't know. You think a, you think a girl like her and a guy like me and right. no, no. <laughs> and the love triangle is born. Right. On Yavin 4, they make a plan to destroy the Death Star by having someone launch a proton torpedo into this small little part of the station's reactor. And it's like a really hard job. So Han, you know, as per always, he's like, eh, I'm out. And Luke tells Han, they need you. And he just doesn't really care. And Princess Leia wishes Ben was there. You know, again, Ben has been, well, he is. He's everywhere. So Luke decides to take on the mission in a starfighter. There's more Star Wars and very cool special effects. I mean, the special effects don't look cheesy at all. I was really impressed. Of course, I probably saw the reissue because I've seen scenes that were not in the original. But from what I saw, it all looked pretty epic. I mean, in the original, did it look just as good? He added new things, but the concept and the... The trench run where they've got to get in yeah. um, is is just as like, you know, sitting there going. <gasps> but the other part that they ran into is that when when Vader goes out to fight them, when, you know, we've gone man to man and that's not working. And so he looks at two of the pilots and he says, come with me. And he gets into his ship and his ship looks different. Darth Vader in a TIE fighter made me LOL, literally. I was like, this looks so funny to me. He looked cute and small, to quote <laughs> me. He did. He's just like a little Ewok. I don't know. He looks so like little in that cockpit or something. I don't know. It made me laugh. At least the guy in the last movie who will forever be the boyfriend from Girls. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. <laughs> yes. I mean, he had a cool ship that he, or plane he or did. whatever that he flew. You sure. know, like his was a little bit cooler than everybody else's. But things are getting dicey and very complicated. And Luke can hear Obi-Wan guiding him like in his mind. Use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. Right. And the key is, this is where Lucas gets into. Don't embrace technology. Be organic. Take the shot on your own. You know, have some faith. And so Luke, you know, there's the line, you know, he's turned off his targeting computer. Luke, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. But he's going to take the shot freehand. Like using his senses. Right. And of course, because the other guy almost, you know, it impacted right on the surface. You know, Red Leader took the shot and could have made it. But no, because he can't make it. We need our hero to make it. So Luke comes in, takes the shot, or he's supposed to take the shot. We have uh, Biggs gets taken out by Darth Vader. Is destroyed. You know, hurry up. Boom. Bye-bye. And suddenly all we have is Luke all by himself. And he's not going to make it until... Until... Lazy Han Solo comes back. He has a, uh, I guess, a change of heart, and it's all about to go to hell. And he comes in and saves Luke's life. This is when Luke is able to take out the Death Star's main reactor and blow it up. Now, let's blow this thing and go home. And, you know, Vader is knocked off course off into the ether. Um, So he is, you know, the bad guy continues to live. We didn't know there was going to be another movie. We didn't know he was going to show up again. Neither did Lucas. (laughs) Neither did Lucas. There you go. He was just gone. And so they get to return to the planet as heroes. And R2-D2 is in really bad shape. Luke doesn't seem that concerned about it. But Did you pay attention when he jumped out of the the X-Wing? And he comes jumping down and he yells out something. What he yelled out, if you listen carefully, is he yells out, Carrie! (laughs) 
He does, <laughs> he does after Carrie Fisher. Yes. And then she runs up and gives him a big hug. And But the interesting thing that comes into this, and this is where Star Wars will take you, is that, okay, so the end of A New Hope, they blow up the Death Star, right? right. And at the end of Return of the Jedi, two movies later, they blow up the Death Star that's under construction. And Kevin Smith, as you know, is, is a gigantic nerd. And there's a discussion that takes place in Clerks about the destruction of the Death Star. And one of them is, you know, they're like, he's like, okay, fine. New Hope, blow it up, fine, that's whatever. It's, you know, it's just a bunch of Imperials. They're the bad guys. They deserved it. You know, he's like, but Return of the Jedi, there's a bunch of contractors on there. They're building that thing. Stormtroopers don't know a thing about toilets. So they can't put that in. So now you've got a group of people who are just trying to make a living, just trying to do a job. And this crazy rebellion group comes in, this political upstart and blows it all up. And now like, I'm dead. here just doing my job. Right. I just, I took a government contract and now look what happened, you know? And oh. so it's, it's that kind of discussion that you get into that, you know, the outgrowth of, yeah, I guess I've never really thought about that, huh? You know, <laughs> so. Well, lesson learned, don't take a government job for the empire. Be very careful. We end with the medallion scene where all the, all the troops are lined up and everybody walks up and did you notice who got a medallion? I thought they both got medallions. Right. And who Chewy. didn't? Chewie does not get a medallion. And oh, poor, poor Chewie. Among the fans, the fans are like, he was there with everything. He was right along with everything. You know, what? he doesn't get a medallion. Lucas wrote this off saying, well, Wookiees, Wookiees aren't into medallions. They've, they've got other things. And they, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, as it's set up, Chewbacca is supposed to be 200 years old. And so, you know, if you're 200 years old, do you really care about a medallion? But it becomes a thing with the fans where we're like, ah, you know, and later on. That is discrimination. Right. And so we come to episode seven, eight, nine. And there's a point where after the death of Han Solo, sorry, spoiler. Oh, it was terrible. It happened so fast. It does. I literally didn't know that happened. Oh, (laughs) And I don't know how it happened. We'll we'll save how it happened. I only had like a hundred years to watch this film, but that's okay. When she's General Leia, she comes up to see Chewbacca and she hands him what we presume and and believe is Han's medal. And so we're just like, now, before that happened, because remember this, you know, they didn't know those movies didn't come out until the last, what, five, ten years. So in 1997, at the MTV Movie Awards, (laughs) Chewbacca was given a Lifetime Achievement Medal Award (laughs) um, on on the MTV Movie Awards to make sure he got something. That he knew that he was appreciated for all of his bravery and and hard work and dedication. Right. So it all comes full circle. Um, and underlying all of this is the incredible musical accompaniment of John Williams, mm-hmm. who is the soundtrack to my life. And if you listen to John Williams' greatest hits, you will find yourself sitting there going, oh, he did that. And, and you know, you're... For me, it's the theme from Superman, you know, 1970, Christopher right. Reeve, Superman, mm-hmm. and Indiana Jones, and Star Wars, and Jaws, and interestingly enough, Home Alone. The person who was doing their music dropped out at the last minute, and Chris Columbus, as a joke, said, let's see if we can get John Williams, and he went for it. That's uh, crazy. I love it. And he has scored the entire Skywalker saga. He did all nine movies um, and has a theme for Ray and has a theme for, I got to see him at the Hollywood bowl conducting. And the man is like, what he's a genius. Doing this. Oh, he's incredible. And he can only, I mean, literally he's at an age where he can't conduct the entire time. He could only conduct like half of the time and it didn't matter. He just would do all the, you know, he did Harry Potter. He did the music that is our childhood. And that's it. That's the end of the film, but it's really just the beginning. 
Indeed it is. For George Lucas, October 2012, he got kind of a a big payday. He sold Lucasfilm to Disney for over $4 billion. Wait, what? Yeah. That is an insane amount of money. Yeah. Disney acquired Lucasfilm for over $4 billion. I can't even comprehend that dollar amount. (laughs) So this decision was not an easy one. George Lucas said, I was about to have a daughter with my wife. It takes 10 years to make a trilogy. In 2012, I was 69. So my question was, am I going to keep doing this for the rest of my life? Do I want to go through this again? Finally, I decided I'd rather raise my daughter and enjoy life for a while. And he went on to say, I've spent my life creating Star Wars 40 years and giving it up was very, very painful, but it was the right thing to do. Wow. I mean, it must be hard. I mean, if other people take it and do great things with it, you're like, great, I have passed the torch. I can die happy. He did go on, Pat, you can probably verify this. He did go on to, I don't know the official title, but like consult, if you will, for uh, many of the future Star Wars. So he was there and he was involved to a degree, but obviously he wasn't the owner. Not at that point. Disney bought Marvel in 2009 mm-hmm. and they spent another $4 billion and bought Lucasfilm in about three years later. And then they went further. And in what was it? 2019, they bought 20th Century Fox, the, the entertainment division. And fanboys everywhere rejoiced because at that point, they now had the rights to Spider-Man and the X-Men and Deadpool, which are all Marvel properties that had been licensed out to 20th Century Fox. But now we're back in the fold with the Mouse House. And now we can see X-Men crossing up with the Avengers, crossing up with the Fantastic Four, which is going to get rebooted. And, you know, there's a bunch of kids my age who are just jumping up and down like little three-year-olds going, I want to see the new movie. It's such a joy for the original Star Wars fans to be able to share this with their kids and ultimately one day with their grandkids. And so the legacy just continues forever. In fact, the total estimated value of Star Wars, at least in 2020, was $70 billion. And that's probably a low ball. (laughs) It, It may very well be. This is a family thing. We go whenever there's a new Star Wars movie, we get everybody together. And it's not just, you know, the five of us. You know, you saw some of the bigger group pictures where I'll send the word out to like four or five of my friends and we'll all bring our families. And so that's why the the next one that is due out, directed by uh, Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman fame. Um, She did those two movies. She's doing Rogue Squadron. And there's a preview out on the web of her talking about her dad being a pilot and that she would see him. And now she wants to bring that to the Star Wars universe. And all of us are just like, sure, I don't care. Sure, you're great. You know, and Taika Watiki, he was he's also in Mandalorian. He does. Uh, OK, Kate, remember the robot IG-88, the assassin droid, the one who's like, going, I will self-destruct. Oh, he's like, no, 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 friends. no. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is that is voiced by Taika Watiki, and uh, he is phenomenal. Um, he did he did you know a bunch of the Thor movies and reinvigorated everything. And he has been given a Star Wars movie to do, and so everyone's jumping up and down and saying, "Yay, nerds!" So, I I love him. He directed Jojo Rabbit. He did wrote and directed it. It was amazing. And I loved watching his interview. Um, I saw him at one point, and somebody said, "You know, you're there, and you're." You're dressed up like Hitler and the mustache, and and yep. he's ha- he's half Jewish, and he said, "Yeah, he's like I felt kind of foolish. <laughs> I just it just it felt silly, um, and that's kind of neat." I thought that was one of the smartest films I've seen in so long. Yeah, 
He's got, sorry, I'm a, I'm a movie buff. I could talk all day about what that man produces and how he's got such a great sense of humor. And if you go see some of his earlier stuff, they are, it is fall down, hilarious, funny, but with a message. Right. So, um, so Pat, I want to ask you one last question before we wrap things up. What character do you identify with the most and why? Now or back then? Let's Let's ask now. Do you guys know what Dungeons and Dragons are? Yes. Okay, the role-playing game. Yes, mostly from Stranger Things, but yes. I'll take it. In in that, I always wanted to play, you know, a fighter thief, pretty much Han Solo. And in the real world, when you realize that by age 34, I had spent 28 of my years in school and I had a master's degree and a PhD in education and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm the wizard and that's just what I'm going to have to accept. So now I'm I'm pretty much Ben Kenobi. Um, especially with the teacher part of it and everything like Not that. Not too bad. And, I mean, you have the beard. So. I do. And uh, <laughs> and the wisdom, Kate. And Oh, I'm sorry. And the wisdom, big brother. <laughs> yeah. The impact of Carrie Fisher probably can't be overstated that when she died in 2016 yeah. at the age of 60, within oh. what, a week of her mom? Yes, it's devastating. Uh, Debbie Reynolds. Mm-hmm. And at the end of episode eight, the director put at the very end in the credits, he said, in loving memory of our princess, Carrie Fisher. And there was not a dry eye in the house. Mm -hmm. You know, you could handle the idea. Okay, David Prowse was, you know, he was old, not to be mean, you know, in this last year, he passed away. And, you know, and Peter Mayhew, he passed away. And, you know, but it's that each one, each one of the new films, episode seven was supposed to be about Han Solo. Episode eight was about Luke. Episode nine was supposed to be about Leia. And they had to do a lot of tap dancing. Um, her daughter, Billy Lord, yes, was was in it. And also, footnote, was in Rogue One. And there they do one, they do that other thing with the face, with the with the digital reanimation of the uh-huh. face. Yes. Or Carrie Fisher on Billy Lord. But but you still get the idea of like, okay, that's her daughter playing her mother at that age. That's kind of cool. Right. Um, so, right. but still, it's just one of those things where you're just, you know, you, you want to get a star Wars fan in tears, just start talking about Carrie Fisher and the fact she's not with us anymore. And just, and that said, Carrie Fisher was crazy and had, you know, she would do these panels where she'd talk and just talk about whatever and, you know, totally irreverent and, and, but there, you, you couldn't help but love her because of that. She was the one that would tell you all those crazy stories. And so she's like your favorite aunt that, you know, you can't lose. <laughs> and they didn't let her wear underwear on the set. <laughs> so damn it, she has some things to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure to have you. You are a wealth of information. That's a nice way of saying I, I talk too much. <laughs> no, you have more details in your brain than I was able to pull together in like a week. Did you see that timeline that I sent you of like all of the episodes of Star Wars and all yes. of the shows and all? I've watched most of them. And so thank you, ladies, for the opportunity to be on your podcast and to record thoughts and dreams of what is the one of the most influential films in my life that directs a lot of my choices, um, believe it or not, even to this day. Um, the idea of what does it mean to make the right choice and what does it mean to do the right thing even when it's hard or even when it hurts. And the ideas that come through of Yoda, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And I know, you know, there's four silly little lines, but God, there's a lot of wisdom there. Okay, you ready to go full circle? That 
was Frank Oz, who did the voice of Fozzie from the Muppets. And they designed the puppet of Yoda for him. And Lucas was like, I don't know if this is going to work. It's a puppet riding around and, you know, trying to teach him stuff. And damned if that isn't the most impressive character to the point where you're watching a show 30 years later based on, you know. Pat, I have to say that answer was a total like mic drop moment. But thank you for being our first ever guest for May the 4th. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. We do want to remind you to rate and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And just a friendly reminder, you can find us online at theuntitledgenxpodcast.com. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye. Subscribe, you must. (laughs) 